talking with Laura about cars again. Anyway, so you're going to check out this, what year is that Volkswagen? So 77 uh, Rabbit Mark 1 Volkswagen. Oh, so it's being sold in Asheville. Um, and they're asking that. I won't, we won't get into details about what you're going to ask for. I don't think I'm going to be able to get much negotiation going on that. Basically, unless it's like a perfect car when I show up and there's no paint flaws and there's really no interior flaws, um, I'm not going to buy it. I I'll see. see. I'll see how it is to drive and how fun it is. And well, basically, it has to be like a brand that. new car. Like off right. the, I, I tell everyone that buys a car, take it and drive it pretty hard. If it does not drive like a brand new car, you don't want it. Period. And mm -hmm. that goes for one thing for collector cars for you. But it I'm just talking about everyday what drivers. The price is, though. There's that. It depends what the price is. Especially for someone like you who can do all the work themselves. I still expect a lot. But back back to our conversation about steering, you had asked me, um, you know, why the BMW felt so good on track. And it was a combination of the communicative steering and BMW. No, I'm super familiar with that. BMW is known for their steering. They're given. They're given. And they're given for the suspension. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, if you ask anybody, like top three, you know, exotics excluded, top three brands for um, seat of the pants, driver communication and rawness to connection to the car and that may not be the case so much these days ever since you know bmw and porsche and a lot of these companies are really famous for highly communicative precision steering went electronic with their with their power steering pumps but um bmw had an advertisement back in the day and for the e36 m3 and it was a it was a magazine advertisement and the the ad said and i don't know how true this is but i'm pretty sure it's true they would stick a quarter on the track in the middle of the apex and the driver could feel the quarter through the steering wheel as he was going through an apex on a racetrack at speed you could tell when he hit the quarter. Um, <clears throat> when we test that one day, that'd be fun. All right. I'm sure Whiskey it had a lot and to testing do testing with... a quarter on the track. I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so the thing about those BMWs, besides the communicative steering, which again, if you're talking about trying to be as fast as you can on a racetrack, the objective is to have no yaw one way or the other. No oversteer, no understeer. Put the power to the ground. Get on the throttle early. Never have to lift. If you're sliding, you're not going fast. Period. And, um, you know, um, there's something to be said about how fun it was to whip that Nissan around the track and control the atomic bomb that it was in terms of like just being so loose that 
you know, coming down the hill into turn um, uh, 12 at Road Atlanta and having no downforce and an improperly set up suspension and you're going 100 plus miles an hour into, you know, a downhill right turn. 100, 100 what? 20? Mm, Nine, probably 18, not quite 15? that fast. As I'm Just turning, crazy. as I'm turning into 12, I may be going 105, okay, 110. At road and I think by the time I get to turn to break zone for turn one, I think I was maybe going about 130, mm. 125. That's a lot of speed quick. Yeah. But, um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm very curious about that. No, I mean, um, the car was not set up properly in terms of suspension and aero. And I so think you that would have like changed. It was just gonna come around on you. Yeah, all the down. time. It was loose. It was loose. You'd give, you'd lift off the throttle in in a brake zone, or you'd even hit the brakes. You know, coming into a turn, try to trail brake it, and it would want to kick the back end out and oversteer on you. And then coming out of a turn, it had on throttle oversteer. Um, I mean, one thing I will say, it never understeered, which was really nice, but. I mean, it would have made a great drift car. You know, it's crazy. Well, it is, right? It does make a, a... You know, so you're talking about that. And what what's kind of tripping me out right now is, like, I've had a bunch of Z cars, right? I had them starting year around, like, 78 up into 94. And I manhandled the piss out of those cars. And they were very tail happy. Mm. Like, I had a blast, but in the wrong way. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's why everybody... Turns the 240SXs into drift cars, right? I hadn't got to have that much. It didn't have enough power to uh, really do anything crazy like I did in the ones before. Even in the 78, 79, 280ZXs, inline six, the L series engine, I could, I could get, I could act up really bad like in those cars. I mean, I did a lot of crazy stuff, and and they did what you're talking about. Like they were. Um, you had to learn how to control the car mm. and work with the power and the feel of the car. Mm. Um, yeah, I didn't really have any experience with other cars at that point. I had driven uh, some BMWs and I knew the difference in the feel and I didn't lose control in the BMWs, but I lost control of the Z cars almost every time I drove them. I mean, I just went mad. And um, so I can see what you're saying. Like, that makes sense to me. Like, I, I get what you're saying. But to me, that was like, I didn't, I didn't, I guess I didn't know the difference that much with performance in another car that's going to handle and stick better until I drove the Subaru STIs, uh, which are way on the other end of the spectrum, which are just drastically sticky um, and amazingly built cars. Like, yeah, they're they're uh, more understeer than than oversteer. Oh uh, yeah, they did understeer problems kind of intense sometimes. I mean, the only way to get those cars to oversteer really is to put them into a rally situation where you take all the weight off the back. Um, more than likely, you have to use the e brake or be in gravel, you know, and pitch them in, and then just put your foot to the floor and rip it, you know, and let the differential get you you know, sideways, but they're not going to naturally want to oversteer like a, you know, a BMW or a Nissan. But the, right. the, the BMW, um, at least the ones that I've driven, 
um, when they step on, when they step out on you, and they certainly will. Um, it's in a very linear, progressive manner. So if it's you if you don't have snap. right, it's not you know. I mean, if you looked at the curve in like you know like a logarithmic form, um, as far as the amount of oversteer with versus the amount of like steering input right or or um g-forces right like the bmw would be a very linear graph you'd come into a turn it would start to step out on you the longer you waited to correct the more it would step out on you but it would be like almost like drifting in slow motion versus the nissan which is like you know is it going to step out is it going to step out holy crap you know rip the steering wheel as hard as you can so that it, you can catch the drift, you know? And, and I don't know if, again, I don't know if that was because of the way they set up the car that I was driving. It sounds like it's sort of a characteristic of some Nissans. But the 350 Roadster that I drove yesterday um, wasn't like that. The, the Roadster had... Probably not balanced. So this was what year Roadster Nissan 350Z? 2006. Okay. And that was uh, actually, I think that's like a year after they came out. Or so. No, I think 2003. Was it 03? Okay. And then in 07, <clears throat> they went to the, the HR, which is like not much more power, but it redlines, I think, like 500 RPM more. Um, there's a big debate within the Z community about which engine is better. I think, I think the, the tuners like the 2003 to 2006 engine better, and the I don't know. I see what you're saying, and also it really pisses me off that you know more about the Nissan platform than I do right now. At least those. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what the HR is. Anyway. High, high rev. Hmm? It stands for like high rev or something. High rev. Okay. Yeah. They definitely didn't use that previously, so I'm not not used to that at all. Hang on a so this is Laura Vernon, my wonderful friend. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic. You have stepped into listening to us talk about cars as we drink some really fine whiskey. She's a... Uh, you know, what I would call bourbon head, um, knows her stuff on whiskey and <laughs> dramatically knows her stuff on cars. And that's how we met, was being car enthusiasts. We've raced together, we have drank together, we have had great times, many times, and we'll continue on. Y'all get to kind of join in and listen to us talk. A couple of girls drinking whiskey, talking about cars. Now we just need a cigar. Do you have a fine cigar? At the dealership, I do. Damn it, man. But not here. Damn it. Unfortunately. But, um. I have another one What is this? They're like all my half smokies. I got a pack in the car, but they're like, there's like two bucks. Okay. Um, I'll, I will live. I think the reason I didn't like that car the other day was because it was a roadster. Okay. 
Yeah. So you like, generally you like the setup, except for the weight. No. Well, I mean, the the 350Z that I drove on the track is a purpose-built race car. And it would probably be a lot of fun on the street with the exception of the fact that, you know, if you came in hot to a turn, it would slide out really dramatically on you. And then if you didn't have really fast hands or didn't drink your coffee that morning, you would probably wind up on the other lane in oncoming traffic. Not necessarily the wrong direction, but certainly the rear end of your car would be. Well, when we're you not know, recording, I have to tell you some stories sometime. <laughs> so, like, here's an example of something similar. I had a Scion FRS uh, that I sold. Um, and I had it during the winter time. I think I bought it right in the middle of winter. January, February. I, I think I know where you're going with this. Well, I didn't crash it. Right. A well, you know, driver may have. Oh yeah, a lesser driver, or a lesser driver. I see <laughs> a lot of those cars with salvage titles for a reason. The uh, they were made for drifting. Yeah. Does well, anyone and... aware of this? Like, I I get kind of sick of people saying that FRS doesn't handle well. They're literally made to turn loose. Well, I've driven them. I've seen they have their own class in autocross. Mm -hmm. Right, and. That class, um, it's the only car I know of that has its own class. I can't think of any other car that has a spec class in autocross. I thought Miata does. Not to my knowledge. I thought they did. Uh, well, we're, well um, NASA definitely does, but I guess what you're saying, yeah. Hmm, for, I thought for, they did. For, I didn't for know. Solo, I don't know Miata. For solo nationals. Mm -hmm. There is a class that is only FRSs, BRZs, BRZs, and, what and now? 86s. 86. God, I, I just... And you have to build them to a spec. And let me tell you, when you set them up to do autocross, they don't look like they're tail-happy. I mean, of course they they're are. They're beasts. They're beasts, but they but they are well-balanced cars that don't have seem like they want to... No, I've only driven the one I've, I've sold. Me too. I've only driven a stock one. Mm -hmm. That's how mine was. And it had all season tires. Mm -hmm. And they were probably older. And so in the wintertime, you know, with the very skinny stock profile wheels and tires, that car was so tail happy. Oh, I hated it. I thought it was horrible. But I knew what it was built for. I take that back. I did drive um, another shoot BRZ. I did too. I forgot about it. I raced one. Autocross. When did you race a BRZ? I didn't race one. I well, I sort okay. of did. I I got to drive it around Weaverville, which mm -hmm. wasn't really a good test. It was a it was a friend of a friend who had one. We went mm. we went ripping up Town Mountain Road one night right after I bought my Evo Nine. Uh, that was right before I met you. Mm -hmm. Um, so the FRS I drove was such a beast to to manhandle and lay down a time that the owner beat me in it which wasn't has not been the norm mm -hmm. um for me driving i was pissed but i could not get that car to handle the way i needed it to 
to make a good time. It was a car that took a lot of learning. You have to You know be, what I'm saying? Next yeah. to cars that just hand it to you like the sports wagon I've been racing lately, which is, here you go. Yeah. Take me as fast as you want. Yeah, and the, and the Fiesta ST that I had was very similar, mm -hmm. right? I mean, those are what some people might consider cheater cars in H-Class because they're just very forgiving. They've got lift off oversteer when you need it, and they just put the power down, and they hug a turn, and um, they're probably not classed correctly for what they are. Um, but um, I would say... In general, you're right. That that is a car that requires really good car control to handle to keep from oversteering. I was driving it back to my house one night, the FRS, and I was right over, you know, a half a mile down the road here at the fire station. And there's a turn that's really not all that intense. I mean, it's, you know, what if you were rally racing and someone was shouting out the next turn, they they'd say it's an easy right, you know. And I don't know if I hit a patch of ice or I, I don't I don't think it was cold enough for that, but it was probably just above freezing. And I went around that turn at speed and the tail end just went right out on me. And, you know, I mean, I caught it. Uh, it was and, and, and that's one thing I will say about that car. Uh, it does want to drift. But it's like the BMW in the sense that it is a linear curve. Or, or I mm. should say, no curve, really. Like a linear graph of progression. Like drifting in slow motion, almost. When that, when those cars step out, they step out slowly. And then you can correct late if you need to mm -hmm. and still catch it. What you're saying is similar to the Z car, which is what I'm used to. No, the Z cars go flying out from you. Huh. They whip around. Because I never lost control of the FRS, so I didn't get to feel the... The 350Z that, that I drove at Road Atlanta was like that. But I was also mm -hmm. going really fast, and that car had 50 or more horsepower than stock. And it had aftermarket suspension, which was not adjusted correctly for, you know, rebound and damping. And um, so I can't compare it to mm. how a regular 350Z streetcar is. You know, I, I can only compare it to... The Roadster that I drove, because I haven't driven a bone stock 350Z coupe, but the Roadster that I drove, the the weight was really uh, unbalanced. Just to, the, you ever get in a car and 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 drive it around and not even necessarily push it, um, but just the way it feels in the turns and how it's communicating to you, it's engaging and it feels special. You know. You really are starting to make me question my thoughts on cars because I have this knowledge over here. It's mostly Nissan. It's not all Nissan. You know what I'm saying? Which to me, they have a linear throttle response. So when you bring up linear as a term, I always think about Nissan RPM and torque. Uh, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. It's horsepower and torque as it goes through the RPM bands. Very linear. And that's why they have so much torque response from here to here. It just goes. Yeah. All the way. The torque curves flat all the way to red line. And, mm -hmm. the, and, the, and the horsepower builds all the way to red line. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful feel. Yeah. But you're saying the suspension and handling are not really matching well, no, compared I mean, to again, other cars. Again, we're talking about a Roadster, which has more weight. More chassis flex. 
and where the weight sits in the car is not allowing for 50-50 weight distribution. I don't think that car has 50-50 weight distribution as a coupe in general. I think it's more right. front heavy anyway. Which um, the, the, the Z cars are known for 50-50 weight distribution. Are they? Uh, I think over the years it was it was either that or really close. I think maybe the 370 was a little more than the 350. Huh. But I, I, I do believe that um, the 350 has a little bit of front bias. Okay. Um, and the, and the Roadster was, I mean, it was on all season tires again. It, it's hard to explain. You get in, you get in some cars and they go around a turn so effortlessly with so much communication that they just encourage you to go faster. They just like kind of poke you in your side and they're like, you can, you can go faster. You can go faster. Come on. You know, like. I know I get that feeling, but I got that in Z cars a lot or Nissan in general, but yeah. Well, I mean, again, uh, I don't know. If, if if it was just the roadster that i drove or i mean all of it has to do with setup and suspension of course um it's also how the owner drove it stock um mm -hmm. you know i mean you get in like an s2000 right um, have you driven an s2000 yet i've had several of them oh you've owned several Oh, I've sold them, but I've awesome. Them. Yeah, I've had AP ones and AP twos. I don't know what that means. Uh, AP one is from two thousand to two thousand four. Okay. Or three, four. I think it's four. Okay. Um, and it was a two liter, um, F twenty, uh, engine, and um. They redlined at 9,000 RPM, approximately. 9,200, I think, maybe. Um, and they had sharper steering ratio, uh, more peaky engine, uh, less torque, but more horsepower up top. And um, they had tighter suspension as well. So, the the general consensus around S2000s is that the AP1 is more of a track-oriented car and the AP2, which has the F22 engine in it, which is a 2.2 liter, which only redlines at like 8,000 RPM, has more torque down low, has a more linear uh, horsepower curve when VTEC kicks in, um, you know, if you looked at the graph of like, you know, the horsepower curve on an AP1, it's nothing's really happening until you hit VTEC and all of a sudden it spikes like crazy, right? And like the AP2, even though it's still mechanical VTEC, it, it definitely builds more power and torque down lower. So as a street car, it's a little bit better, you know, around town because you don't feel like you got to wring its neck to get anything out of it as much. The steering is a little softer, which makes it a little more enjoyable on the street as well because it's not so twitchy and the suspension is more forgiving. I enjoyed driving the AP2 over the AP1 on the street. I never drove either of them on the track, but I can say that as a street car, I'd rather have an AP2 just because um, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't generally like driving race cars on the street. I don't want a car that has, you know, knock your teeth out suspension and super twitchy steering on the street because, I mean, I 
go to the track. I get, you know, I can understand where someone would want that who who does the track, who, who all right. they care about doing is an autocross and going up, you know, to the tail of the dragon. But if you actually like drive on the track frequently, right, you don't care about that as much. Yeah, Laura and I drive. She drives an old Jetta TDI, and I drive a Prius. I mean, we literally take <laughs> our, our street cars are not what you would consider, you know, performance cars. No, so. not at all. We take that out at the track or the course. Yeah, once you start racing, you don't really feel so, like, I used to think, like, I wanted to have the fastest car on, on the street. I wanted to have, like, Definitely. an 800 horsepower, like, you know, I turbocharged will, yeah, LS that. Corvette. You know, I used to want, you know, crazy power. And then the more I race, you know, on the track, the less I care about that because I need... I need to keep my license to keep my business going, number one. And I will definitely always want to put my foot down and drift around corners and cause mischief on the street if I have it, you know, available to me. Um, we will never It's stop important doing that. to get your rocks <laughs> off at the racetrack. If it's you important. have those to get off, like, if you have that need, mm -hmm. put it on the track. And at least put it on the autocross. Like, autocross is very easy to get into and... It will definitely yeah. get you, you feeling good. You don't get to be going 100 plus miles an hour at an autocross. Mm -mm. And there's no crazier feeling than like, you know, like back to that Z car at Red Atlanta. Coming down into turn 12, going 100 miles an hour and that car wants to kick sideways and just wringing its neck to try to keep it in line so that you can go as fast as you can through that turn. You know, <clears throat> autocross um, is... Uh, definitely uh a lot of fun um i tend to have more fun driving a loose car at autocross and sliding it all over the place than i do a car that wants to grip and actually get a fast time i mean don't get me wrong i want to have the fastest time but i also really like that viper that i drove at bristol mm -hmm. and with the old tires from like 2005 or whatever they were uh that car was just slidey mcslide oh my god yeah i All don't even over. know where the goal was for that i mean like, so much make, torque let's make sexy and big and just nothing else we'll just we'll just throw everything else on there i don't know a lot of people say the viper is like uncontrollable and maybe over 100 miles an hour on a racetrack it is but at that autocross i felt absolutely fine <laughs> well it wasn't well, are you saying it wasn't stock no, it was stock. It was stock. I mean, thing? I only got it, you know, you can only get up to like 70 miles an hour on an autocross course, sure. yeah. you know, and um, at that speed, the Viper and on the street and I've driven that same car on the street, um, you know, it, it felt very manageable for what it was. Um, and believe me, I put my foot to the floor and turned it and got it sideways. And, you know, people say like that, that first generation Viper is like, you know, one of the most difficult, you know, cars mm -hmm. to drive. It has one of the worst reputations. I remember I'm sure, out. I'm sure at a, at a racetrack. Do you remember track, when it came out or were you like five years old? Because I remember when it came no, out. it came out was, in what, 92? I was three. Yeah. I remember when it came out. It was fighting Corvette. And that's right when I was like not getting into cars. I was already into cars, but just like, like head over hills. And it was Corvette and the Viper fighting each other for horsepower, well, fighting have, each other for everything. I have the Corvette that fought that 91. Viper for sale right now, the ZR1. I have a 1991 Corvette ZR1 for sale right now 
Wow. With that Lotus V8 in it. That brings back a lot of memories. Hmm. Which was faster than the Corvette. Hmm. Um, I mean, the Viper. Sorry. Well, yeah, well uh, you're talking about 10 cylinders versus 8. But... Well, I mean... And another almost 3 liters of displacement. The Viper engine... Is that the last model, that 91, of that body style for Corvette? Mm -mm. C, what was it? C4. C4. So they ran to 96. That's sad. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying... The Viper was way ahead of its time as far as looking way better than that car. I yeah. didn't even realize that was the one. Yeah, like but if you ever so sat in a first-generation Viper... Um, now, granted, the C4 interior was definitely cheap and definitely not what most people would consider on par with, you know, the BMW... M3 or the Porsche, you know, Carrera 911. Those cars uh, that cost car, a lot more. That back car, then. the 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 Viper and the ZR1, on track on paper, were going head to head with Ferraris, the Porsche 911 Turbo, um, the Lamborghinis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the 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 fastest cars you could buy. They mm -hmm. were going toe to toe with, for a lot less money. That's right. And you got what you paid for. But I will tell you this, the original Viper RT10 that came out in 92, 91, 92, mm -hmm. um, had, uh, it was a kit car, okay? I mean, I mean, when I say it was a kit car, I mean, it was a kit car. It looked like something somebody put together in their garage using PVC plastic and, you know, a uh, screwdriver and some nails. I mean, the interior is horrendous on the original viper number one it had no exterior door handles um <laughs> you know what let's talk about that on another episode we'll just get into like we'll just go like oh a the design rant. was insane this the, is hilarious it like, didn't have windows around. didn't have it didn't have windows it had how much does this car sell for do you know I don't remember what this they car, were. I don't know what they were. MSRP. I would have. I can. I can probably guess from back then. Seventy, sixty yeah. grand. No, probably a little less than that. But yeah, maybe probably 50, around there. Maybe. No, 50. no, no, no. The the vet and the Viper the were neck and neck for a long you time. For sure, was right over sixty thousand dollars. Now sixty. The base model Corvette. The base model Corvette in nineteen ninety when the ZR one came out was thirty thousand dollars, maybe thirty two thousand dollars in 1991 for a brand new uh 5.7 liter not even the lt1 at that point it was still mm -hmm. the um tune port injection 5.7 liter engine i think it made 240 horsepower at that time um the lt1 mm -hmm. came out in 93 or 4 uh maybe 92 Definitely 93, it sounds right. And the LT1 was a huge jump from that, um, you know, that tune port engine. The The tune port engine was basically just a Vortec V8 uh, that they put in the Camaro, you know, Z28, blah, blah, blah. Same, same basic engine. The, uh, the ZR1 the same displacement 5.7 liters it had the lt5 lotus built that engine it's a four cam overhead cam uh 16 injector dual intake runner 
really high revving. I think it redlines at like 7,500 RPM, you know, uh, race engine. Actually set the record at that time for like running 176 miles an hour for 24 hours straight. Wow. Blue it was Chevrolet a world record that they would not they have broke. been proud that that was Lotus and not Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was weird that Corvette you know had a lotus engine at the time but i had no you know, idea like you Ford, just told me about that recently and like i'm like yeah i just need to know more about it like i'm like okay it's, i'm familiar with lotuses uh more with their suspension being very popular and their um steering feel i've driven a lotus elise and the steering feel and suspension was amazing but it was toyota engine you know well yeah isn't that funny Mm -hmm. that, Lotus, that Lotus commissioned Toyota to design their engine. Savage World. Well, well, Toyota commissioned Subaru for their Boxer and FRS. Americans, Who's building what? Like, you don't know until you dig in, you know? Americans at the time did not build high-revving, race-oriented engines. At the time, they were way behind. That's true. On, well, overhead on, valve. Shit ton of overhead valve. Mm -hmm. uh, throttle body carburation. They weren't doing a whole lot of EFI. Well, the tune port injection was EFI. Well, they were one of the first cars that ever did it. So they, they had done fuel injection for a long time. But my, my point back to the MSRP on the on the Corvette, the ZR1 package uh, was 30 extra grand on top of the regular Corvette. So that's double the price of the car. Just to get the Lotus engine, basically wide body kit, which doesn't even look like a wide body kit. It was three inches wider. And, you know, it had the same Bilstein suspension as the Porsche 959. Ride control. It was the first Corvette generation to ever have ride control. So. It was European. Mm -hmm. That's what you're telling me. But the interior One of the sucked. best. Well, that's Chevy. So one of the best cars ever made, or Chevy ever made, whichever one way you want to look at it. Was European. A lot of it, a lot of it was from, you know, a lot of the racing components were from Europe, but the body and the interior and all that was still cheap American GM plastic. Now, when Dodge built, when Chrysler built the Viper, um, you know, they kind of wanted to do something similar to like, you know, a Shelby type car, um, and. Well, didn't Shelby have something to do with Viper? I think he I did. thought so. I think, I, I think he did for the design. I don't know what else he did. You but. know, that, that engine, I don't know. I think that was an adaptation of the V10 that they were putting in, you know, their their trucks. Um, that engine, basically, as far as I know, and I'm pretty sure it's an aluminum block and aluminum head, but the architecture of that V10 is the same V10 that they use it's a push rod eight liter v10 except higher compression and aluminum block and aluminum heads and it was the same motor basically that they put in the you know ram 2500 at the time except with like you know forged internals and lightweight pistons and connecting rods and stiffened valves and you know all that yummy and mm. it made 400 horsepower and, and right around the same amount of torque, which compared to the ZR1 was more. I think the ZR1, though, um, was still faster. Um, lighter car. Uh, I don't know. They're both made Seems out of, uh, they're both made out of uh, fiberglass. 
I don't know if I knew that. And the nope, uh, the hmm. uh, the but the thing about that that original Viper, right? They were all roadsters. Um, and like I said, I had no windows, no exterior exterior door handles. AC was an option. I didn't. Um, I don't remember that. But yeah, that's that's really cool. You're saying it's basically a kit car. That's crazy. The pedals, like for example, you you have to like if you're tall or you you know you have to move your feet to the like the pedals are all to the left of the driver position. It's like the transmission. Yeah. Um, the engine. Out. The engine was pushed back so far to try to keep the you know the the weight off the front wheels that they actually like. Had to move it into the cabin a little bit. And Aren't then, the vets from that area the same way? The transmission of. housing is like over and your feet are over. Which to me is just, I did I hated it. I Your thought it was ridiculous. on the Corvette are a little better. Hmm. I mean, I've driven both of the cars. I can say that the ZR1 is a better car. But the Viper felt more special. Um, the Viper felt more exotic. It sounded more exotic. Um... And if I was going to pick one to have as a daily driver slash show car that I would just want to take out like once a week, uh, well, should, I should say not a daily driver. If I was going to pick one for a daily or if I was buying a car that I was going to drive to work every day, like at the time, definitely would go with the ZR1. If I was buying a car that I wanted to drive one day a week and take the car shows, I'd buy the Viper. But there's a really good reason why those first gen Vipers all have like less than you know, 60,000 miles, you know, it's, it's because they're like hogs. They're well, they're just, they're terrible in, in terms of like, you know, ergonomics. Well, everything. Basically Every, what you're I saying. mean, the seats well, were, not the everything. seats I'm were saying, crap. Like, yeah. The interior ergonomics. was crap. Um, you know, I mean all the buttons and switches and it was just plastic for miles and the wind noise. I mean, at least the, the Corvette had, automatic roll up and down windows removable glass top i mean they were similar in that way because the rt10 had a removable top and neither of those cars is easy to remove the top on by the way um the corvette c4 in order to remove the top make it a, a targa at that time uh they gave you a uh uh what do you call it a, a, a socket wrench with a little Torx bit on the end, and it said Corvette on it, sat in the armrest, um, and you would use that to remove four bolts in order to take the top off. In the C5 generation, they just made it like a lever, like a normal convertible top, but at that time, you know, it took a good five minutes or so to get the top on and off because you had to screw in these four, you know, bolts to get them on and off, and the, and the, and the Viper was even worse. In fact, there was no good way to keep the top for the Viper in the car. They had a soft top, and I think they had a hard top option for the for the Viper, but I think standard was like this little piece of vinyl that you could fold up and stick in your trunk. But again, you know, it never sealed right. If you got stuck in a rainstorm in a Viper, uh, it would still leak water with everything sealed up. <laughs> Let and me the windows, compare a $20,000 Nissan to these cars who was all laid out. All the ergonomics was... Super well, set you up. can't because they didn't have that kind of power. There was no Nissan. Uh, I mean, the 300ZX could be tuned for that kind well, of power. Well, the twin turbo version yeah. was a beast. It was and a beast. And that was about, 
At that time, it probably would have been about 25 tops. Yeah, and I mean, that, that would have been a much better daily driver, but not exotic. It's not an exotic. Unfortunately. You know, the Viper is an exotic. The ZR1, mm -hmm. questionable, because it still looks like a $30,000 Corvette. In fact, you could barely tell the difference between the ZR1 and a regular C4 Corvette, unless you knew what you were looking for. Hmm. So, um, but... I was getting back to the to the window thing on the Viper. I don't know if you know this, but the windows are actually like like an old like MGA like where you actually lift them off the door like a Jeep Wrangler and stick them in, in the trunk. When you wanted when you, the windows had a little slide. I don't know if you've ever driven like a like a 90s model Jeep Wrangler with the half doors and the, and the... So I know what you're talking about, and I'm in shock right now, but we're talking about a Chrysler vehicle. Yeah, this is This a, came from, literally from the Jeep then probably. Maybe well, I mean, like Jeep... At, yeah, I mean, yeah. At that time, Chrysler owned Jeep. Um, but the, the Viper was, for all intents and purposes, like bare bones like a Jeep in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Leaked water. You want to roll up and down the windows. You got to, you know, you, you got to take the window off the door. And put it in your trunk. And if you and if you wanted to lock your car, um, there was a little there was a little key on the window, a plastic slide window, and you could lock the window. But to open your door, you had to slide the window open from the outside with your key, slide it open like a you know a fast food window, you know, and stick your hand in the car and unlock the door from the inside. <laughs> huh okay so and you like this car well i liked it because um of how raw it was and there's there was no other car with a eight liter v10 and the steering is actually pretty good on the viper i liked the steering on the viper well, both brakes. I've always heard horrible things about the brakes. Like, they just don't stop. Um, it's too heavy or again, whatever. Again, we'll you know, clear. I never got that car above 100 miles an hour. Um, and I'm sure on a racetrack at 100 uh, plus miles an hour, lap after lap, I'm sure the brakes are terrifying. As a street car and at an autocross course, I never had an issue. But I think that's what the charm of the RT10 is. I don't think it was ever... The ZR1 was a real track weapon. That car was a real track weapon. In fact, it beat the 911 Turbo around a racetrack by over a couple seconds. Um, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. And um, that's super crazy. Yeah. So I mean, it was setting all sorts of records. I mean, it was it was crazy successful. The Viper um, never had a real racing pedigree. Um, until the most recent generation with the ACR, you know, and yeah. that car really set some records. Um, but, uh, that car was, I understand it is completely unlivable on a daily basis because of the arrow and the stiff suspension. And it's just not a car you would ever want to drive, you know, regularly the charm of the original Viper and the late nineties GTS models are, they're fun on the street and they're special and they feel special when you drive them. And that's the point I want to come back to with the 350Z. The car I drove the other day, the Roadster, didn't feel special. It was boring. 
I could forget that I was even driving something that was supposed to be fun. Were you driving the touring submodel Grand, bike? Grand touring. Oh, I've heard this is horrible. Grand compared touring. to the sports edition or whatever. Well, I don't know that there's all so that I've much heard. difference. You know, mm-hmm. but it, I mean, it was extra weight, of course. You know, you got power seats, heated seats. But they have more assistance in the steering. I've heard. Oh, really? A little softer suspension. That would surprise when me. it came out. That would surprise that, me. Those are the things that I understood actually, about it. That that would be a shock to me if they actually had more power steering assistance. I, I mean, I, I would not believe that. But if, if that's the case, I just really, um, there's some cars you get in and you drive. And the second you drive away, you don't have to be going fast. You don't even have to be going around a really tight turn. Um, you, you just get this feeling that what you're driving is like talking to you. Um, and I didn't get that in the 350Z. I don't get that very much in the Corvette. The Corvette is raw. You're one you have now. Yeah, the ZR1. Yeah, right. It's raw. And I I just got to say, every C4 Corvette that I've ever driven has this kind of like wet noodle feeling. Um, You know, you can... the, The steering wheel itself is like kind of mushy and... You can move the steering column up and down. It's an adjustable steering column, but it doesn't lock really in place. You can sit there and go like this, like up and down about like Everyone you've a half an saying? inch either way. Yeah, they're all they all feel like wet noodles. Like they're like I've driven before, but it's just an automatic clapped out one and I hated it. Yeah. I, it was I mean they, they just um you can tell they handle great, but they don't want they don't feel rigid and they don't feel like they want to encourage you to go fast like you could cruise in a corvette and be like content you drive a viper and all you want to do is see how fast you can go around the next turn (sighs) and and rev it out and listen to the v10 and i mean the the lt5 sounds amazing in the corvette but um you know it comes down to a a preference thing if i had 30 five thousand dollars to spend on one or the other because that's basically the exact same amount that they both cost comparatively um i i would as a as a weekend car i'd buy a viper as a as a regular you know like daily driver car i'd buy the zr1 still i just think the zr1 is better to live with um but the viper feels more exciting and you still you've had you've owned a z car and sold it you still have yet to fall in love with Z cars. I haven't had a Z car. Well, yeah, I have. Yeah, I've had, I had a, well, yeah, I've had a 300 ZX and a 280. No, I have had a Z car. What am I saying? So I've had a. I had the 280 ZX. I had the 300 ZX, and then I had a 280 Z. Um, as far as I'm oh, concerned, yeah, the as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, the 280 Z is worth what they were worth five years ago. That car should never be worth more than 15 grand for the best one in the world. They are grand touring cars. They are boring. They are soft. They have bad steering, you know, communication. Uh, they they aren't fun to drive. Now the 280 ZX, the 280Z that I had, uh, which did have some upgrades, and perhaps the 280ZX would be comparable with all the things that the 280Z had. I mean, it, the 280Z had aftermarket shocks, aftermarket springs, polyurethane bushings rear brake rotors, sport front uh, brake calipers, um, you know, it had an exhaust, it had 
um, electronic ignition, uh, light and pistons. I mean, I'd say that's kind of similar to the upgrades that they made when they made the 280ZX. I just never, I've just don't get any enjoyment out of driving. Well, I don't say I don't get any enjoyment driving a 280ZX, but it never inspired me to get in the car and go. Every time I looked at the 280Z, I wanted to go for a drive. Because the 280Z to me felt like a Triumph TR6. Mm -hmm. It's not the fastest car in a straight line. It's not the fastest car in the turns, but it's engaging. It's tight. The chassis tight. Um, the steering's tight, and and it sounds good, and it feels good shifting through the gears, and and so it doesn't matter how fast you're going. It just feels good doing it. The Corvette ZR1 doesn't feel good doing it. The Viper does. Um, doesn't feel special, you know, doing it. Um, there's some cars that are highly capable cars, um, but they don't feel good at their capacity, you know. Um, yeah. We'll end it there. And so just saying, uh, that's Laura's opinion on cars and mine is almost drastically different. So if you have a different opinion on that, please state it or say anything or ask questions. It doesn't matter. But it's very interesting the difference in how I own, I used to own a 280ZX and, and she bought and sold one. She flips cars for a living. Uh, rare and exotic cars, not just regular cars. But the difference in opinion and feel and experiences with those cars and how different that is because there's a huge community around z cars and it's because they are an enthusiast car they're amazing but your your opinion your feel for it is so different and you've raced a super powerful z car well i, I don't really know the upgrades on it so exactly that, what they did. if it was, was for reliability or power like 330 crank naturally aspirated okay so that build was more for reliability than power or? Oh, no, no. It was pure power. In pure fact, power. they blew that engine very shortly after that race. Wow. Okay. So, that's well, the yeah. third engine, by the way. Right. The third VQ that they went through in a year. Well, it's, it's always more of that story. Or anyway, more study you do into it. Um, Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not 2JZ. It's not RB. Which is mostly put into cars doing high power speed like that. I think the main issue is oil starvation. Mm. Like the and Subarus. Running, and running lean. Like on the those boxers. Cars. Um, it may have been builder's mistake, you know, I don't know. But I loved the power of the VQ, and I wish that car had arrow and the suspension had been dialed in better because I'm sure I'd have a different opinion. I think as a platform, they're great if you get the right upgrades. And I'm not trying to knock them as race cars or street cars. It just depends what kind of driving you want to do. But just as an example, um, through autocross, right, alone, I've seen a lot of people bring 350Zs. Um, they never They don't do well do at well. autocross. Mm -mm. They really don't. Packs. GTRs don't either. You don't see them at autocross. Yeah. But they're track beasts yeah. usually. I mean, a lot of that could be up to the driver. Um, I have yet to see an auto, uh, a Z car do good at autocross. But for any race car at all, what it comes down to is setup, setup, setup. If the race car builder doesn't know <clears throat> how to set the car up properly, 
dial in the suspension, dial in the brakes, dial in uh, the engine tuning, um, you know, the alignment, um, the weight distribution, the aero. Any car can feel crappy on a racetrack. You know, I've but seen do that. What I will say is, out of the yeah. box, it's hard to f, f up a BMW E36 or E46. It is really hard to make those cars not feel great on a racetrack because they don't understeer. They're very predictable. They have a lot of torque down low. They shift well. They're mainly pretty reliable, with the exception of a few small issues. But the engines are pretty reliable. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're just sweethearts. I mean, you could sit there. You like it better than a Porsche? I mean, I don't know how much experience you have with a Porsche. I had no experience I've with driving a Porsche. I've never raced a Porsche. I've only driven them very quickly on the street. Um, but I don't know if they're comparable. I think a Porsche properly set up would wipe the floor with a BMW M3. Well, the reliability is intense too, which is one of my favorite things about cars is reliability. Like, I mean, well, you can you can make an awesome car, but if it doesn't last, I don't care for it. Like, well, yeah, I can be example. very picky about that. Yeah, I mean, but you know, it, again, that, that can also come down to uh, the tuner, um, you know, the, um, the oil you're using, um, how frequently you replace the disposable parts and how, you know, how you pay attention to the common issues, like every car has its quirks, right? Um, I personally know at least two or three different people and teams that race 986 and 987 Porsches. Um, and I have yet to see one go through an entire race season without blowing the motor. Interesting. In fact, the Salins team Salem's hot dogs, you know, Salem sponsors a ton of races. They do ADR, they go, they do IMSA, right? They do champ car. The team owners go and race these Porsche 986 uh, boxsters uh, at champ car. And uh, back in um, January of this year, or maybe December of last year, I was in, I was at Sebring racing with Randy and the Salem's guys, um, one of their cars, the engine blew during test day right away, and they were racing uh, just one of the other cars. On the first day, there were two races, one day each, uh, Saturday, Sunday. On the first day, they blew the engine in their second car, and then they found an engine that was on Facebook or Craigslist, or maybe it was at a friend's shop. I don't know. They found a, a donor motor that supposedly only had you know fifty or 60,000 miles on it, and it was only a few hours away. I think it was in like Miami or something. They drove from Sebring after the race. They got the engine. They brought it back. They spent all night swapping the engine out, started the race the next morning. And on the third lap, that engine exploded. <laughs> so, well, hell, you know, and that's a professional Porsche racing team. That is a team that all they race is Porsches, nothing else. And if anybody knows Porsches, it's them. And they still blew engine after engine. They well, um, well, thanks for listening. We're going to conclude this episode. And we're going to continue to drink a little whiskey and talk cars. As we always do. And we'll always do.
Um, thanks for listening. I'm the Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, and that's Laura Vernon with Rev Rare and Exotic Vehicles in North Carolina. You can find her and look up and see what vehicles she's selling. Uh, it's always something awesome and amazing and exotic and rare from Lancer Evos to 280ZXs to Studebakers to CR1s to Isuzu Trippers, everything under the sun. Y'all have a good one. Bye-bye.